genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. This week we're discussing Richard Connell's short story, The Most Dangerous Game, and Shirley Jackson's short story, The Lottery. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest, Kate Dorowski. Welcome back, Kate. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, very glad to have you on for uh, these two short stories, uh, which it turns out this this style of fiction that we're going to address in these two sh- two short stories is going to have some overlap with the survivor discussion that we've had you on for on the podcast. Yes, definitely can see that. So a bit more info about these short stories, which I'm going to guess many readers had to read in high school or junior high they're very commonly assigned uh in english classes but the most dangerous game is a 1924 short story that was originally published in collier's magazine it tells the story of an american big game hunter who falls off a yacht and washes ashore on an island owned by a russian who enjoys hunting humans and the lottery was first published in a 1948 issue of the new yorker and it tells the story of a small town gathering for the annual lottery at the end of which, spoiler warning, the winner of the lottery is stoned by the rest of the townspeople. So, Kate, had you read these short stories before I asked you to read them for for the podcast? I had not, or at least to my memory, had not. If I had to read them in junior high, high school, I don't remember them, which I would be shocked because they seem very memorable. So I don't believe I had any contact with them before you asked me to. Okay. Um, I definitely remember reading The Most Dangerous Game in a junior, or no, it would be a high school writing class where often we'd read a short story and have a discussion about that for the start of the class. And then we'd just be turned on our own to do some creative writing after that. And I remember the discussion around this where there was one student who generally did not participate, but they got all in on the discussion of The Most Dangerous Game. Like he was a super fan of this short story. <laughs> This one grabbed them in a way that a lot of the other short stories had not. Um, and I also, I, I can't remember when I first read the, the lottery. It's definitely been more than once. And I have assigned it to my American Lit students. But I remember the first time I read it. I don't remember the setting, but I just remember the feeling of like the end, like just hitting me like, whoa, <laughs> like what? <laughs> what was this that I just read? Um, and I had had no preparation beforehand as to as to what was coming. Mm-hmm. So, did one of them hit you? Like, do you? How did the lottery ending hit you before we even jump in? Um, I I knew how that ended. I think you you described it to me briefly, so I knew how that one ended. But reading it so vivid and it's like a gut punch, and you're just like, oh, like you feel kind of icky after yes. it. Yeah, icky. And that's like the feeling I remember. Feeling. Yeah. Very much from the first time I read it. Like just just kind of like gross. Um and when we get to the trivia, Gro- we're not the yes, only ones who had that reaction. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> um so these two short stories, like I said, they often get assigned um in in English classes. Uh the most dangerous game has been called the most popular short story ever written in English. It gets included in so many um 
collections of short stories and anthologies of American literature. And it's also doesn't hurt that it's, uh, you know, old enough that you can reprint it now. <laughs> um, well, I guess it was actually this year it entered public domain. So I will just say get ready for some more adaptations uh, explicitly of The Most Dangerous Game <laughs> to be coming our way. Though there's a lot of like cousin adaptations <laughs> or inspired by <laughs> style adaptations um, that the, this has been like identified as like a cortex that has spawned so many um so many stories uh that it's become uh, almost a trope to have like the humans hunting humans or or um the you know the one on the run from from the others um style of story um it has been published both with the title the hounds of zaroff and also uh the most dangerous game the most dangerous game is a much much better title in my opinion because you get a little punning happening uh within there <laughs> and uh a short story title that can pull off the pun without you really like appreciating it till after you've read the short story itself i think that's a that's a strong title that's happening there um the story was directly adapted for film in 1932 um it's been cited though as the inspiration for dozens of other films it also was directly adapted as four radio plays including a version starring orson welles and and another one that starred basil rathbone who was famous as the radio version of sherlock holmes um (laughs) so when i looked it up you know what has been cited this as like a source text or a core text that that kind of inspired a story i will just say it's been uh an inspiration for episodes of tv that range from get smart to gilligan's island to the incredible hulk to supernatural to blacklist so like multiple decades and multiple genres of tv have like had an episode that kind of borrowed from this i will also say star trek the famous arena episode definitely has a feel um like the most dangerous game um and even I saw, you know, Quibi, that new app that's desperate for everyone's attention that does the short episodes. <laughs> um, yes. they, at, at their launch, they had an adaptation of The Most Dangerous Game that starred Liam Hensworth and Christoph Waltz. I didn't, but I haven't heard anything about it. Oh. I just saw that listed as one of the things on Quibi. Um, far too many video games have levels or entire plots that are very similar to this premise for us to start listing them. Um, and we really can't even start to scratch the surface of literary works um and that have borrowed this premise uh hunger games comes to mind immediately it's a very popular trope um so you just once you start looking for it you're gonna see the most dangerous game in so many things um and even <laughs> the inventors of paintball have cited this story as part of the inspiration for making the game inventing the game of paintball that's incredible Wow. And once you hear it, you're like, well, obviously, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. But they actually, <laughs> they themselves have said it. It's not like just a, oh, I wonder if. It's like, nope, they, they said it. Wow. <laughs> and uh, in the creepier side of things, the Zodiac Killer made what many believe to be a reference to this short story in one of his letters to the press. Um, so serial killer, maybe inspired somewhat by the short story. Mm. Um, Richard Connell, the author, he wrote... Uh, a lot of popular short stories. He wrote over 300 uh, short stories, but he was also a screenwriter and he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for Meet John Doe, uh, which is a, a very good golden age of Hollywood film. So well done, Richard Connell. Um, so <laughs> the lottery. Now some trivia on that. I mentioned that uh, the most dangerous game has been called the most popular short story ever written in English. The lottery has been described as one of the most famous short stories in American literature. Like that's what like the first lines uh, is like citing literary critics uh, on their Wikipedia page with those descriptions. Uh, and the lottery won the O. Henry prize for uh, short stories when it came out. 
In response to its publication in The New Yorker, reportedly many subscriptions were canceled and a whole bunch of hate mail was sent through (laughs) the postal system to both The New Yorker and to Shirley Jackson. It generated uh, the most response The New Yorker ever received for work of fiction, or at least reputedly uh, the most response ever. Uh, Wow. Has been adapted as a radio play, a live television play, a ballet, which creepy. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. <laughs> as a ballet, no, like I can, I can envision some of it, but I don't want to. Um, a short film adaptation, I, I, and then one TV movie that was actually a sequel inspired by the short story. So they made a TV movie set in the world of the lottery, basically, but not telling the story of the lottery. Uh, it also was adapted for an opera. That one feels like a closer match to me than a ballet. Um, <laughs> also a stage play. And uh, Kathleen Kennedy's production company has announced plans to adapt the short story for film, though, like all of entertainment, that is currently on hold. So not sure what movement there is on the, the most recently announced film adaptation. Um, Shirley Jackson wrote six novels and more than 200 short stories. One of her novels, The Haunting of Hill House, was nominated for a National Book Award and is considered one of the best ghost stories of the 20th century. And that one has been adapted many times as well. So Shirley Jackson and Richard Connell, um, I, I, somehow I feel like outside of like these two short stories, they're kind of somewhat uh, like forgotten from, the, forgotten from the literary canon, but they had amazingly prolific careers and were very popular in their day. Interesting. Cause I actually had not heard of either of them until now, but this makes me very interested to read more of their works. Yeah. Um, I will say just from these two short stories, which is what I'm definitely most familiar with them with. Um, Richard Connell feels more like a pop writer. Like it's more of a pulpy action feel to his short story Mm -hmm. and Shirley Jackson's definitely feels more literary, like aiming for the highbrow crowd um, in, in, in the writing. I think they're both good and very accessible. And I'm in saying that I'm not trying to like make a value judgment. I just think they were writing for two different audiences uh, in, in terms of these two. Right. Right. All right. Well, before we move on to the spoiler summary, we want to thank you for downloading this episode and for listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we just talk about the state of entertainment right now because of COVID-19 more than we talk about newly released films and trailers or anything like that. Uh, and also more than we give updates on our fantasy box office because those updates have paused at the present time. Uh, but we also, we, we do give recommendations for films that we've been watching on streaming services and talk about things we've been reading lately. So there are some stuff for us to discuss on the quick cast. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss on the podcast. So now for the full uh, spoiler a summary of both of these. And I think I'm going to read both summaries and then we'll, uh, we'll see where the discussion goes from there. Um, so the most dangerous game, a big game hunter named Rainsford is on a ship headed for the Amazon basin. A fellow hunter points out an Island that the crew call ship trap Island. They discuss hunting and Rainsford says the world consists of only predators and prey that night. He hears gunshots ring out. And when he leans over the edge of the ship to see where they came from, he falls into the water and nobody hears his cries for help. Deducing that the gunshots must've come from land. He swims in the direction he heard them coming from and eventually reaches a shore. The next day he explores the Island and finds a mansion owned by a man named general 
Zaroff. Rainsford is welcomed in and given a room and clothes by Zaroff's servant, Ivan. In the mansion, uh, he sees the mountain heads, mounted heads of big game animals. Rainsford praises Zaroff's kills, and Zaroff says he now hunts more dangerous game on his island. Rainsford realizes Zaroff hunts humans, and Zaroff invites him to join the next hunt, but Rainsford refuses. That night, Rainsford hears more gunshots on the island, and the next day, Zaroff says the sailors he has lured to the island no longer offer enough sport. As a hunter, Rainsford may prove more challenging. Zaroff promises that if Rainsford lives through the next three days, he will be allowed to leave the island. Rainsford is given food and a knife, and then turned loose on the island. He tries to make a confusing trail to follow before climbing a tree and waiting for Zaroff. Zaroff finds him and toys with him before letting him run off again to pro- prolong the game. Rainsford makes a booby trap that wounds Zaroff, and Zaroff goes back to his mansion but promises to renew the hunt the next night. Rainsford uses the time to run as far as he can before making another trap. This trap kills one of Zaroff's hunting dogs. The next day, Rainsford sees Rainsford and Ivan uh, leading a pack of dogs. Rainsford is able to kill Ivan with another trap, but then is cornered on the edge of a cliff by the dogs. Rather than be killed by Zaroff, Rainsford jumps to the rocky ocean at the bottom of the cliff. Saddened to have been denied his kill, Zaroff returns home. When he turns on the light in his room that night, Zaroff is shocked to see Rainsford standing there. Zaroff tells Rainsford he's won by surviving three days, but Rainsford says he still feels like a beast at bay. Zaroff bows and tells Rainsford that the dogs will eat one of them tonight while the other will sleep well. Later, Rainsford concludes that he has never slept in a better bed. The end. Oh, summarizing short stories is is so much easier than some of the other stuff we have to summarize. (laughs) Uh, The Lottery. Uh, villagers gather together in the summer for the town lottery. There are 300 people in the town. It's a festive atmosphere. Children are making stacks of rocks until families are called together. Mr. Summers runs the lottery using a shabby box. He suggests that they should make a new box, but nobody wants to mess with tradition. They make sure everyone is there or has a representative that can draw for them. Mr. Summers calls each head of a family up to draw from the box. When Mr. Adams comes, he says that he's heard another village may stop the lottery. But old man Warner says that's crazy talk. Young pe- uh, That's crazy young people talk <laughs> from a generation who don't understand the value of tradition. After every head of family has a slip of paper, everyone looks at theirs. Bill Hutchinson's has a black spot. His wife Tessie yells that it's not fair, but they put enough papers for Bill, Tessie, and their three kids into the box. One paper of which has a black spot. And everyone in the family, even little Davy, draws a paper. Tessie gets the paper with the black spot, and everyone picks up stones and helps the small children pick up rocks as well. And they converge on her as she screams, it isn't fair, it isn't right. The end. Really short summary for the lottery. <laughs> but That was short. Yeah, that was nice. Still conveyed <laughs> it. I still feel creepy right now. Yeah, uh, and especially like... At- at the end, it's when they're when they're helping like her own three year old son get a rock as they're converging on her. That's like one mm, of the most unsettling mm-hmm. lines in literature uh, for me. Um, ugh, it, it, <laughs> it's really creepy. Uh, but I guess is there one of these you want to talk about more? Uh, we we certainly have time on the episode. Is there one of these that stood out more for you, Kate? Um. Well. I was drawn more to the most dangerous game for obvious reasons that it felt less heavy. Um, Mm -hmm. But I thought it was just very compelling. Whereas the lottery was just so like anything we say about it. It's so, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say with that, but 
Uh, it's just a heavier story. Whereas the most dangerous game, yes, involves like murder, but and it's an, an insane serial written, killer. It's, <laughs> yes. But the way it's written, it's just captivating. Whereas the lottery, it's so jarring with the like festival like atmosphere of the town and then this mass murder of this woman. There's just something very off putting to it, where this is the most dangerous game, it's exciting almost. Yeah. The most dangerous game is definitely like a pulse pounding action story. Where like you're you're moving yes, from beat to beat I, and you want to see what he does next. And the lottery, it's all about creating this atmosphere and then twisting it all on you at the very last second. And then yeah, and then all of a sudden you're just like, what is happening? Why I don't want to read these words anymore <laughs> kind of writing. Um so let's talk about the most dangerous game first, and then we can we can finish with the heavy one <laughs> to, to close it out. Great, great. <laughs> um, first, like this text is from 1924, I, and I think it's shaped or so much of our popular culture. Um, like both of these together is the Hunger Games, obviously. <laughs> like so, th- so there's that. Yes, that's a um, perfect meld of both. <laughs> yeah, one of the, one of the most popular books and then also film series of you know this century has has been the hunger games and you can see some of the narrative dna uh, you know coming out of both the most dangerous game and the lottery but with particularly with most dangerous game like as you start to think about you know the predator or uh you know the japanese battle royale um like there's so many texts that you're like oh okay this is this is clearly um a you know building upon some of the the action beats and some of the the expecta- audience expectations that come out of something like the most dangerous game. So I think this is a really significant text in terms of our entertainment history, um, you know, nearing a century old now, you know, in its, in its existence, but you can kind of point to so many examples that feel, um, you know, akin to it. Uh, so I guess maybe one of the questions we should think about is why do we like this story <laughs> or this type of story if not this one explicitly <laughs> um for me it was like putting myself in a rain rain rainsford um mm-hmm. as him and like the ex- like the excitement of being chased but then flipping it and being like oh i got you and it sounds morbid because he they're murdering each other but it was just like that psychological idea of like oh i'm being hunted but i can overcome that and become the hunter was very interesting to read and explore that in my mind yeah and so i think this text often gets used in like short story classes when they talk about like some of the the great themes of like man versus nature or man versus man this is the iconic man versus man text and it's elevating like all the stakes of man versus man. Like it's, it's outside of business. It's outside of the courtroom. It's like other places where you see man versus man in very mediated settings where like there's rules and expectations. Like this is throwing all the rules and expectations mm-hmm. out because of uh, the premise. Um, like the stakes are so high um, and, and the bad guy is such a clear bad guy. Like you root for Rainsford to do anything to survive. And Rainsford is still a good guy, even as he's able to be, uh, you know, build these kind of barbaric traps and he, his goal is to kill. Um, but, but the bad guy is so evil and so obviously evil from, you know, as soon as we find out what he's doing on this Island. Um, 
that you can still root for Rainsford to kind of lose his humanity and win, and it still feels like a victory. Yes, absolutely. And I, I was thinking if if he hadn't, if he had fallen in the water and that's the end of the story, it's meh. It's not like that wouldn't be one of the greatest short stories ever. It'd be like, oh, there's just an interesting plot that was written one day. But the fact that he outwits him and comes back is just so captivating to read. And the way it's written there at the end, like it is really Zaroff bowing and saying, well, one of us is going to be fed to the dogs and the other one's going to sleep really well. And then the next line of it is Rainsford concluded he had never slept in a better bed. <laughs> like that's, that's our finale. Like we don't see the final just fight, like, but dot, it's still... dot, dot. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely works. But you can imagine it. as being... yes. Yeah. And, and in the short story format, I think that uh, something about short story allows for that kind of leap in a way that might feel you might feel robbed if this was a novel and the novel like just had been chapter after chapter of hunt and avoidance and dodging and wounding, but not killing. And then the finale is <laughs> like, you turn like, like one chapter is ending with Zaroff's vow. And then uh, you turn the page and it's like a one sentence chapter. You'd be like, wait, what? But, but in the short story, <laughs> that kind of finale lands really well. It works. Uh, another key to it is um, the the two characters, even in such a short story, are so developed. Like, I want to know each of their backstories. I want to read more stories on each of their adventures and then lead them to this moment because they're so compelling as characters already so quickly. Yes. Uh, like we, we very quickly, like I said, we realize Zaroff is just evil but there's still something that's a little bit alluring about him. Like, like he's presented in a way that is still captivating. Um, and, and like to see the descent that he must've taken from hunter of animal to hunter of humans. And now even saying, well, now just hunting humans isn't even enough. I need to hunt someone who's my equal in terms of hunting and knows the tricks and knows what I'm going to be looking for as a hunter and knows the best way to try and trick me. That's, the level I need uh, at this point, like the descent uh, would be like, it's implied in this story, but like you said, it would be kind of fascinating to actually engage with that more fully. Yeah. And same with Ransford and his, his hunting in the various locations and his travels on the seas and, and like some of his philosophies, which it would uh, always be like, interesting. And it's a short story, so we don't really dwell a whole lot on in terms of their backstory or their philosophies. But we do like very blatantly get his discussion about, well, there's only predators and there's only prey in the world. And then he's put in the situation where he's always assumed he is the predator uh, and he becomes be, becomes the prey. So, we, we you know, we get that quick uh, flip in the short story. Um, but there's still like the similar to Sarf, like how, how does he develop his philosophy? Cause you get the, the idea that this is something he, he thinks about a lot and um, he's, you know, he's come to this conclusion after years of experience. And so, you know, what is that experience that's led him here to this moment? Um, in thinking about like why this kind of story resonates so much, I think definitely the idea that um, the violence becomes uh 
excusable and kind of justified and something that we as an audience can root for in the sentence. Also with the obvious distance of narrative, like where we know we're just reading a story. Um, We're able to root for this, this kind of um, action between human on human that is appalling in, in, in even like so many other short stories, but somehow in, in the, with, with the premise that we're given, you find yourself really rooting for for Rainsford uh, to pull it out um, and thinking about things that um, borrow from these tropes, uh, you know, the, the other kinds of stories. Um, I, I, it allows for that kind of like classically like humans have engaged in like glad it like violence as entertainment is not unique or new <laughs> in modern culture. And the level of violence, you know, was beyond <laughs> Uh, you know, j- just knowing that it was, we have the the, the distance of entertainment. So we, we talk about like gladiator games as our most obvious historical touchstone, but there's things like, um, you know, the civil war people would come and watch the battles, like go hang out <laughs> on the sidelines basically. And, uh, and watch, <laughs> watch the battles as something to do <laughs> for, for entertainment. So it's not as distant, even as we, we often like to pretend like we're, we're, Oh, we're so civilized. We don't do this. Uh, and I remember when they did the, um, the advertisements for the movie gladiator in what was that? Like late nineties or 2000. I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, they were always yeah. a, a cross cutting like gladiatorial combat with like the harshest football tackles and things like that. You know, showing that, that oh, wow. yeah, we're, we're not in blood sport gladiator land uh, in a lot of our mass entertainment today, though that people do make arguments for like UFC being not as far yeah. removed as some people are comfortable with. Um, but a lot of our most popular, like, like football is the most popular sport in America and it's an extremely violent game. And there are long-term consequences to the health of the players that a lot of people are willing to set aside for, for the entertainment. Like we, we've got to um, either choose not to acknowledge or acknowledge it and try and do the work of separating it so that we can still feel all right about watching watching that and certainly there are those who who can't do that and say i'm i can't watch that one because of the long-term neurological issues and long-term physical issues uh to join some bodies that a lot of the players are going to endure so violence is definitely still a part of entertainment um i think this just is an interesting example of of you know encapsulating that fascination with violence as entertainment into a very uh, compelling short story well and uh, along those lines like thinking of hunger games which as we said very clearly, drew from this. And that was wildly successful book and film series. And it's children doing this to each other. That we went that far as a society to be like, oh, this is a popular read of children hunting other children. It's just an extreme example of like, whoa, we're willing to like, for entertainment's sake, allow this in our in our society not actually but like be entertained by it right yeah and uh then like as far as like the 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 narrative dna that ends up in hunger games we should probably throw in like lord of the flies then as well right (laughs) right right. so so it's lottery lord of the flies in most dangerous game uh as some of the building blocks that is going to result in hunger games and in doing that we're not it's not to say like hunger games is a ripoff or is derivative this is what all stories do is they build off of narratives that have come before and what the author has consumed and what the culture has consumed and the culture is now ready for another step or another variation on a lot of these stories and her games is a remarkably successful one um where you can see you know a lot of 
what those building blocks are. Uh, but enough was done to make it different and also to make the commentary contemporary. Uh, like hung- the Hunger Games has very distinct like social commentaries and crit- critiques that most dangerous game doesn't have in 1924. Um, that it's not trying to do in being published as a pop, almost pulpy short story in Collier's magazine versus hunger games is being published as popular YA, but it definitely has some cultural criticism that is unique to the moment when it was being published. Right. Yes. All right. You want to talk some about the ickiness of the lottery? (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Let's dive on in on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, I mentioned it won the O. Henry uh, short story award, which is fitting because it definitely the twist is what makes it so memorable and makes you pull away uh, with a very different reaction because um, we're so much of it is about building this atmosphere uh, and then making you horrified about what the atmosphere was really about. So it's this very festive party like atmosphere. And then you find out it's a for a, a public execution <laughs> um that everyone participates in through stoning uh that is the result of random chance of the lottery so what do you think are some of the things that shirley jackson is getting at in publishing the lottery in what year was it again let me just pull up the exact year 1948 um well i don't know if we even want to go here but as i was reading it i was relating it to our time right now during COVID and it's very easy to draw parallels of this idea of do we like say, say, keep going social distancing or do we just go at it life as normal and if those who get COVID-19 get it, that's it. And it's kind of the stance of like, well, as long as it's not me, it doesn't matter. Mentality. someone's going to die but it's probably not going to be me and i'm willing to take that that chance yeah like the odds are in my favor so fine let's do that versus this is a human life let's look at it in that sense um no that's that's how i related it to as i was reading yes i i think that's a valid like uh interpretation or of some of the themes that we see in there um and how it's still applicable now, decades on um, from from when it was written. Uh, I, I think that definitely uh, stands out. Um, one thing that for me, uh, like contextualizing it, uh, contextualizing it a bit more in the 1940s, um, when this came out, it the way the village acts um, it, and uh, you know become one in throwing uh, the stones. It made me think a about um Aldo Huxley's essay um which he he was he wrote it in the a little bit later uh in in the 50s uh propaganda under dictatorship but it's about the rise of the Nazi party and groupthink and how um people can lose their sense of individuality and their actual like individual morals as a large group is doing something and they become mm-hmm. part of the group they lose their sense of self um he called it herd poisoning in that essay um and and definitely there's elements of that that for me overlapped really <laughs> quite a lot uh, in, in this short story and that more analytical historical essay by Aldous Huxley uh, that where, where you can see why the late 40s might be a time when someone writes this kind of short story. 
<laughs> um, yes. Yeah, as we're working through, start, start trying to work through for a generation, like two world war, you know, two world wars within the lifespan um, of this generation of people uh, trying to understand how so many people can get involved in both like the level of violence that world war world wars entail, but then like the specific violence that was happening in Germany and what was going on. Um, how does an individual become part of that kind of group, uh, you, you, that group enactment of violence? What's that? Um, I was trying to think of it earlier, the psychological experiment of the guards and the prisoners. Oh, and the Stanford prison experiment as well. That's yeah. the one. That's what I was thinking of that. It, it's so easy as you're not the victim to fall into that power role and, and think you are superior and that it's okay to do this. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a psychological experiment that famously had to be called off <laughs> very quickly where people were randomly assigned either like guard or prisoner roles uh, in an experiment that's supposed to run. I, I should look this up because my wife has a PhD in psychology and will be very upset with me if oh dear. <laughs> I get this wrong. <laughs> Let me just uh, pull up some of the details on this. Um, while I'm looking that up, though, I will say another thing that this definitely uh, represents or is criticizing is the logical fallacy of tradition or appeal to tra tradition as, you know, the reason that we do something is because we've always done it, uh, which is pointed out as a logical fallacy, not because the things that we've always done are wrong, but to say that the reason to keep doing it is because we've always done it that way. That is the wrong reason. Like, what is the reason this has become tradition? Like, what is the actual reason that makes this a good thing to be doing? And it's not just that we've always done it this way. Um, and you see some of the older townspeople are very much saying, well, we need to keep doing this because it's what we've always done. And some of the younger townspeople are like, what? Is this something we should be doing? <laughs> They're like young kids these days. No, no oh, these respect children. for tradition. Yes. All right. Uh, so the, the Stanford prison experiment was run from August 14th uh, to 20th, 1971. Uh, by a psychology professor named Zimbardo, Professor Zimbardo. Uh, in the study, I'm reading off the Wikipedia page on this. In the study, volunteers were assigned to be either guards or prisoners by the flip of a coin in a mock prison with Zimbardo himself serving as the superintendent. Several, several prisoners left mid-experiment, and the whole experiment was abandoned after six days. Early reports on the experimental results claim that students quickly embraced their assigned roles with some guards enforcing authoritarian measures and ultimately subjecting some prisoners to psychological torture, while many prisoners passively accepted psychological abuse and by the officer's request, actively harassed other prisoners who had tried to stop it. The, the experiment has been described in many introductory social psychology textbooks, although some have chosen to exclude it because its methodology is sometimes questioned. Uh, yeah, the methodology should be questioned. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but since we have what it was, I think we should talk about what happened with the Stanford prison experiment. Um, I think this is one of the things that led to... Um, much stricter human subject protocols where you've got to do like massive descriptions of what your experiments are going to be and exactly what will happen to any human subject that is involved in a psychology experiment. Mm. <laughs> um, That's good. Yes. Needed. Yeah. De def definitely needed. So yeah, I think thus far we've said the lottery makes us think about COVID-19 right now today, Stanford's prison experiment from the 1970s. Uh, the, uh, Aldo Huxley's uh, analysis of the rise of uh, fascism in Germany and uh, things that happened during the Holocaust and how that could have happened. So definitely 
like multiple decades, we're seeing like echoes uh, in real human history <laughs> to what is going on with the lottery, which is one reason why I think it's still so resonant, not just Shirley Jackson's skill as a writer and her, um, her clever use or, or, or very intelligent use of the party atmosphere. And then this, this shocking turn of the last page. I think it's also shocking because we see that this isn't as far into fiction as we would hope <laughs> as we would want it to be. Right. I think that was more what's so chilling about it is I could actually see it happening. Not like maybe not directly a stoning, but something similar to this of like, Oh, this is very human nature. Like this could happen. Right. And I think that's why the lottery is so much more chilling than the most dangerous game where like with the most dangerous game, we can find so many parallels in our entertainment that are borrowing from it. And like a couple examples of some serial killers who maybe did something somewhat inspired by this. That's about as far as it goes for, Oh, that's a, um, a, an appalling commentary about the human condition, but the lottery adds like the discomfort of, okay, the, the wonder one connection of a town coming together and stoning someone and teaching the children there, the, the, the mother's own children to stone their mother and think of it as a, like a great party. Like, okay, we, we don't see that, but the, uh, you know, the parallels to real historical events are uncomfortable in, in yes, how close yeah. the, the group think and the, the um, horrible treatment of other humans because it's tradition. <laughs> like we, we can definitely uh, see that in so much of human history uh, in, in our near, history and our, our our far history the the fact that oh well we we're going to treat someone terribly just because that's what we do uh and that is a reason to keep doing it is definitely an appeal uh you know or an explanation for uh you know defenses of slavery uh defenses of of so many uh prejudice so much prejudice uh in the world that is not distanced by saying oh it's just fiction yes i think you nailed that exactly why it gives us such a reaction that we get one other thing that i kind of touched on that maybe we should dig into a little bit more is this idea of tradition and i mentioned it as like there's the logical fallacy of the appeal to tradition as the reason to continue doing something um there's so much about tradition that i think is value like like some people like like to criticize like nostalgia and say like nostalgia is trying to recapture those previous feelings is a fool's errand so it should never be the reason for doing something but absolutely i think like tradition and nostalgia like affect our interaction with whatever it is that we're doing now like you know certain things that you do at christmas time make it feel more christmasy and like are going to resonate emotionally because tradition is is part of um part of like our emotional connection to certain moments and certain things that happen. Uh, but this is pointing out that there's, there's more complexity uh, in our relationship with tradition than just saying, uh, well, I, it feels right to do what we've done before. Right. I think it, you said it before of like, there's the, the tradition aspect of like, it makes you feel good versus the tradition aspect of, well, this is just how it's always been. So we just do this. Um, when reading the story, one thing I thought of was the film, The Village by M. Night Shyamalan and how that kind of holds to so strongly the idea of tradition 
in that village and for anyone who hasn't seen it it's a village set in when is it like 1700s or it, it appears as if it's the revolution style living right <laughs> yeah and they're living in no electricity no sense of modernization um but it one i think he gets shot and needs medical attention and it turns out it's it's set in current time but it's a village choosing to live that way and then they do different means to scare the villagers into staying in the village and not exploring more of the world so they, they don't know that they're trapped in this specific culture um and then that aspect the tradition of it is scaring people into not progressing into not growing not exploring more and that's a dangerous element and i feel like the the lottery story kind of gives that side of it of well this is just how it's done don't question it don't don't use your brain to explore it more just this is what it is kind of aspect and that's really dangerous the the older generation uh in the case of the village or the village not the lottery but in that one it's very much the older generation feel like they are protecting the their their descendants right from the horrors uh like like so, so the village elders are this group of people who all had horrible things happen to them and they're scarred emotionally uh from this and so they want to like separate from the modern world because they say the modern world is too bad and evil so we're going to go create this uh this this better society this utopian society however to do it the way they they imagine it they must shelter fully everyone all their descendants like all the kids <laughs> any the younger generation from the reality of what the world is like um out there like from any sense of modernity and so the tradition is not just uh i guess in their minds it is a means of sheltering them but it's very much inhibiting them like you said the it's it's going to um, literally keep them in ignorance of what the world is around them, but also prevent them from, like, like through fear, prevent them from wanting to find out more, from wanting to progress and and understand more. And so, in the Shirley Jackson lottery version of tradition, it's also this younger generation is being brought up uh, in these in this way, and. But but in that one, like, there's no real sense as to what the reasoning is by the older generation. In Shyamalan's The Village, there's very much you're you're given the exact uh, impetus and inspiration for doing this to the younger generation. In in the lottery, it's just so, this has been happening for so long, we don't know why it ever started in the first place. And it's like they don't even know why. Like the elders aren't keeping this from anyone. It's as if they don't even know. And, and I think, I think that, that's the, the scary part is there's just no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why one reason why the, the ending is so, so interesting, not just as a turn, but until that point, like everything about the festival and the small town and the descriptions of the townspeople like that, that all feels um, like, like a world is being built for, for, um, almost like literary realism, like we're giving, being given a peek into this world. Um, like, uh, like, like, uh, the regionalism of like Mark Twain, where we're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you about how things are done in this one area. 
Uh, I'm going to use their dialect. I'm going to tell you about their traditions. I'm going to tell you how they dress. Uh, and you get a full sense of the community. And it doesn't feel like we're being like told a plot per se. We're, we're, we're really like just being given a peek into the window of this other world, you know, the, the way these people live. And then with the twist at the end of the lottery, like it obviously becomes symbolism, not realism anymore. This is not literary realism, uh, you know, or regionalism that's showing you a world. This is now becomes a story with, um, all this symbolism that we're left to kind of parse through and see how it applies to us. And as, as we've kind of said, like applies to different moments in, in history since it was written, uh, you know, so Shirley Jackson wasn't like looking back on those things, but it was so well done that it seems applicable to so many different moments in time. Yeah, it's definitely, um, didn't you say they, somebody wrote a story that was just in that world, but not about the lottery or did, did a show about it. Yeah, there was a TV movie that was seemed to be like set as a sequel to The Lottery. I, I wasn't able to find what the plot was, but that was how it was described in, in terms of, like I was looking at the list of adaptations of Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. It's a very vivid world that she creates in just a few paragraphs. Um, it's such powerful writing that you're like in the town already and then the twist happens and you're like, oh, what's, why is this happening? Yeah. Um, and I, I think in terms of like the why, uh, why is this happening? I think the, the title of the lottery and the way everything haps, happens is one reason why it's so upsetting because the lottery is like, like it's, it's literally randomness, right? <laughs> um, and, and we expect if, if people are participating in a lottery, it's for the hope of something good happening. Right. <laughs> Typically. Yeah. And here, the entire town is participating in a lottery where we know the the one who was chosen has the worst imaginable outcome happen <laughs> to them. And, and yet everyone else feels like they've won the lottery, right? By not being chosen. Like now that they get to do the fun part of stoning someone to death. And, and, um, and so in the, in this case, like it, it's a flipping of, of the traditional lottery where there's like one, one winner uh, and, you know, hundreds or dozens to thousands of losers. In this case, there's, there's one loser is the one who, who, gets selected by the lottery uh and everyone else has a sense of now now the fun begins uh at this point so it's it's like flipping our idea uh, of lottery and i think that's one reason why it's so shocking of course is is like our association is like the, the winner of the lottery is is a good thing <laughs> <You're> <laughs> you know, right. that's why yeah. so many people are willing to to participate in lotteries and i think it's the the dialogue in it is so interesting because the woman tessie is you crying out like this wasn't fair, like this isn't fair, and the townspeople are saying like be a good sport or say we all took the same chance. Um, it's just such harsh humanity to just tell her like it is what it is and walk up there and we're gonna kill you. Like it's horrifying. And I I, I think one thing that Shirley Jackson does. Um very well as an author is even as like the turn is happening, her writing style doesn't change. Like it's still mm -hmm. like the descriptions of, of like the kids uh, getting rocks that are too big for their hands and you know things like that, for, you know, for their little fingers. That's very similar to the description of like the, the festival atmosphere, how she was building the festival atmosphere at the beginning. Um, so I, I think there, there'd be a temptation or, or uh, some writers would, would uh, like shift their tone uh in and 
making that twist at the end she keeps the exact same tone which makes it more haunting and more appalling yes yeah that's very true i hadn't thought of that before well do you have any other thoughts about the lottery or the most dangerous game um i did with um in the most dangerous game he had this one line that I did find, and I think it um, it kind of sums it up a little bit, uh, both the stories. Um, and it's Rainsford. He's talking about they're approaching the island that he ends up um, playing the most dangerous game on. But he writes this line. It says, sometimes I think evil is a tangible thing with wavelengths just as sound and light have. Which is a really interesting line of putting like, this evil tone on humans and humanity, that it is it can be tangible, um, kind of encapsulates encap- both these stories that they're writing of these truly evil actions that humans are performing. Um, I don't know. That line really struck out to me when I read it the first time of just evil is tangible. Yeah, I, I think definitely. Uh, like you said, it, it applies to both. And um, I think it's the last line of the lottery. Like, the is, it isn't fair. It isn't right. Um, it's such a striking line for me uh, as, as far as, like, the lines that stand out because it's, um, it's uh, like, the way humans are treating other humans are what isn't fair and isn't right. And so often when we say, like, well, something's not fair, it's, it's like, uh, events that are out of our control, yeah. right? And this is saying, well, no, <laughs> what we do to each other isn't fair and isn't right. And that there is a choice uh, and uh, like a gentive uh, action that is driving what's not fair and not right in the lottery. And certainly also in uh, th- that applies to most dangerous game. Um, and that I think is, again, like why it's a little bit haunting because uh, it's making us say, uh in terms of the lottery like so much of it is about this community and the way the community functions and and what they do and then it's it's like the ultimate injustice is in enacted by by the community onto a member of its community and i don't think that is an accident on Shirley jackson's part i think she's probably asking us to think a bit about how our communities function and structure and to not just say oh you know it's not fair that they were born into poverty and that's that's rough that they had that lot in life and like maybe stop and say, well, what is our community? Like, how is our community responsible for that actually? Yeah. I think she, she knew exactly what she was writing. These are both really good text uh, listeners and they're both very available in so many short story co- co- collections, but they're also readily available um, online. Uh, like the New Yorker website has the lottery uh, up on it. And um, if, you, if you just do a quick Google search, you'll be able to find these. They're definitely worth the read. And, I think our discussion has shown, or or at least uh, our discussion has shown for me, there's more in them than even I've recognized. And I'm saying that as someone who's read them as, as a student and had class long discussions about them and also taught them uh, to, to American lit students uh, and had class long discussions on, on that other end. I think there's still more <laughs> that, that I'm getting uh, in this new discussion, some, some new insights that I've gained. So I think they're very worth taking the time to go and explore. And also, um, they're, they're 
very quick reads that are going to linger with you. And I think that's um, something about, I, I, in some ways I feel like the short story gets uh, under respected uh, in, in terms of uh, literature, but uh, there to be able to do, you know, the Edgar Allan Poe, uh, you know, he said the short story was perfect because you should be able to consume the entire story in one sitting. And you can very much do that for these. And yet, they stay with you for so long after that that one sitting. And that's something that a novel can't do because the novel, you must interrupt the narrative because it's too long to do. Uh, and I think there's something special in telling a fully encapsulated short story that transports you, but then also stays with you afterwards. All right. I think that is going to wrap up this episode, unless you had any final thoughts, Kate. Nope. I think you came brought that conclusion perfectly <laughs> all right thank you uh thank you listeners for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows you can go to duelinggenre.com also please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review that really helps us out we would like to thank nick english who designed our logo and scott tofty who composed our theme music if you enjoyed this episode you might want to go check out episode number 20 when we talked about katniss everdeen in the hunger games or episode number 175 when we also talked about a pair of short stories in that case we talked about the yellow wallpaper and the man who buried himself you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com we're also on twitter you can follow at protagonistpod or at jay Dorowski. our producer andrew is at this minute and our facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast and if you enjoyed kate's thoughts uh you might want to go check out fraser cultural history or cheers cultural history uh which are two books that kate and i co-authored about the classic sitcoms fraser and cheers Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Being a character in a short story seems like a tough gig. Short stories are always bad. And it's really oh, condensed, really condensed, rough like, situation. It's just like you're either going to die or you're going to learn something really terrible, possibly about yourself.